Thanks for listening to this Small Town Theologian special. This bonus content comes from other Reformed pastors and theologians in small towns. You may not recognize their names, churches, or towns, but these faithful men have good things to say for your comfort. God's sovereign grace is active in small towns. May hearing from these men encourage you, and may your life be shaped by what you learn. The small town in Milan, Italy, has a population of over 1.3 million people and over 3.2 million people in the wider metropolitan area. Okay, Milan is not a small town. This show is named Small Town Theologian, and Milan hardly qualifies as a small town, but we're going to feature it today anyway. Reform theology is needed in big cities as well as small towns. Milan is the second largest city in Italy, Rome, being the first. We could call Milan a global city or alpha city, meaning it's a sort of hub inside of the world's economic system. It's among the world's most important cities. Art, fashion, design, business, and tourism are booming in Milan. Along with Paris, France, Milan is considered the fashion capital of the world. You may not want to wear a fanny pack if you visit. Although, who knows, maybe fanny packs are back in style if they ever were in style. Milan began around 2,500 years ago by Insubres. Is that how you say it? An ancient Celtic people. When the Romans conquered the settlement in 196 BC, they named it Mediolanum. Mediolanum, something like that, meaning sanctuary. Throughout its history, many different groups controlled the city. The Edict of Milan was signed in 313 AD, through which Constantine made Christianity legal. That was helpful. Ambrose became the Bishop of Milan, and Augustine was mentored and baptized by Ambrose in Milan. Peter Martyr Vermigli was an important Italian Reformed theologian during the Reformation. Roman rule ended in Milan when the Lombards conquered the city in 569. They named the city Milan. Milan is overwhelmingly Roman Catholic, but you'll find Protestants there as well. Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper is painted on the wall of the Santa Maria del Grazie in what used to be the dining room of a monastery. Every year, Milan hosts the Milan Fashion Week, and I can't imagine it's an event of much modesty, so you'll probably want to avoid it. What you may not want to avoid if you're ever in Milan is aperitivo, something like that. This is a cultural tradition where people enjoy a drink before a meal. Between 7 and 9 p.m., you can enjoy a drink in a bar or cafe and afterward uh, enjoy a free spread of various foods. This sounds delightful, but I don't plan on going to Milan anytime soon. Reverend Michael Brown is a minister in the United Reformed Churches in North America. I found out about Michael by reading his book on covenant theology titled Sacred Bond. It's an excellent read. I loved it and found it very helpful. You need to buy this book. You need to read this book. Please buy two copies. Read and keep one of them. Give another to a friend. I'll put a link in the show notes. Michael 
Michael planted Christ United Reformed Church in California and served there for 15 years before Escondido United Reformed Church sent him to Chiesa Reformanda Philadelphia on the north uh, northwest side of Milan, a Reformed and confessional church. I love this statement from his church, which tells you something about them. Chiesa Reformanda Philadelphia is an Italian-speaking congregation of believers and their children who are united not by cultural practices, consumer preferences, or political parties, but by one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. The church is devoted to word and sacraments ministry, including teaching the Heidelberg Catechism. If you're a listener from Italy, please consider stopping in at Reverend Brown's church and tell your fellow Italians, especially those who live in Milan, about Chiesa Reformanda Philadelphia and about small town theologian. Michael is married to Janie and they have four children. Check out Michael's ministry at missionmilan.org. Michael has been very kind to allow me to air one of his English sermons from when he served at Christ United Reformed Church. In fact, it was his last sermon there before he went to Milan. The sermon is titled, Our Lord's Great Commission to His Church. And I thought it would be good to hear from Reverend Brown on the Great Commission, seeing he is faithfully preaching the gospel and administering the sacraments as a missionary in Milan. Please give Reverend Brown your attention. Say a prayer for his ministry in Milan and be encouraged that all around the world, God's men are proclaiming the law and gospel of our crucified and risen prophet, priest, and king. Our God and our Father, we, we do come to you with joy, knowing that to Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And, O oh Lord, how often we forget that truth. And so speak to us today by your word. Remind us of the fact that the Lord Jesus rules and reigns and has commissioned his church to go into the world and make disciples. We pray that you would convict us of our sin, and that you would assure us of our salvation in Christ, and cause us to rejoice in you and the wonders of our salvation. We pray that the doctrine of your word would produce in us doxology, and truly lead us to deeper discipleship. For this we ask through Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated and, and turn with me to Matthew chapter 28, the gospel of Matthew. That first gospel in the New Testament. I was asked to preach one more time uh, as we leave, before we leave. And uh, so obviously I gave a lot of thought to uh, what would be an appropriate text. And how do you, how do you pick a text uh, after serving a church for a decade and a half and going through so much of the Bible together? Uh, it's, there's too many texts that I love and too many that seem appropriate. And... Uh, I, I thought that Matthew 28 would perhaps be the most appropriate uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, of course, uh, as you know, the Brown family, God willing, will be leaving for the mission field in November, and uh, our church has been very involved in missions. Uh, but also, it was on May 23rd, 2004, that uh, Reverend Dr. W. Robert Godfrey uh, former president of Westminster Seminary and one of my church history professors and the one who preached uh, my ordination sermon. He gave our very first uh, morning service sermon on that day, May 23, 2004. And he preached on this text, 
Uh, we had been meeting, as many of you know, or some of you may remember, uh, for about six months before that, having begun in November 2003 to have evening services. And uh, Dr. Godfrey was our first big guest to come and to preach on the big opening day of Christ URC. And he preached on Matthew 28, the Great Commission. He preached a sermon that he titled, Wanted, a Reformed Church, and exhorted us to fulfill the Great Commission and comforted us from God's Word that that commission is being fulfilled uh, through the means of grace. And now we can look back all these years later and see how God was faithful and as we now depart, and, and as uh, Christ URC is in this transition uh, from their first pastor to their second pastor, uh, I think this is the text that I want to leave you with uh, for, your, for your own encouragement and for your own comfort. And so let's read this short text at the end of Matthew's Gospel. Gospel of Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So far the reading of God's holy word. Uh, a, a familiar text to all of us, I'm sure. Uh, probably most Christians, if I said to you, what's the Great Commission? Uh, maybe you'd remember, well, yeah, that means go into all the world. We get maybe part of it. Uh, and it's one of those texts that can become so familiar that uh, we kind of forget sometimes what exactly Jesus is saying there and what exactly he is commanding us to do. And, and uh, as you've heard me say before, we, we tend to suffer sometimes from a spiritual amnesia. Uh, it's why the Bible seems to repeat itself over and over again, uh, because we can be so forgetful. It's one of the reasons why uh, the Bible refers to God's people as sheep, because sheep can often be a little forgetful and, and needy and in, and in need of much care. We, we suffer from spiritual amnesia. Always reminds me of that story uh, I think I've shared with you before of uh, uh, the Prime Minister of Great Britain, uh, Maggie Thatcher, when she visited a convalescent home and uh, she went from room to room uh, getting down on one knee and, and visiting these, these elderly uh, British citizens. And she come to, came to one elderly woman and said, uh, do you know who I am? And she said, no, dear, but if you go ask the nurse, I'm sure she does. <laughs> and uh, we, we, we can be like that a little bit, where we start to suffer a dementia, spiritually, and from Scripture, where we forget exactly what it is that Jesus has told us in the Great Commission. And so I want to draw your attention to this today. And uh, I want you to think about just four things. The basis of missions, the goal of missions, the means of missions, and the promise of missions. And I bring that to you not just because uh, your, your pastor is leaving and God willing will uh, soon 
be overseas on the mission field, and I want to get us all pumped up about missions in that way, but mainly because I want all of us to remember that every church, every local church is a missionary church. Every church has a great commission from the Lord Jesus, and we are involved in missions. And, and, and by God's grace, Christ RC has not only been involved in missions by uh, being involved in Italy and Romania and also seeing pastors rise up, uh, going through seminary here and being nurtured and shaped and then serving now all over uh, the globe. I visited uh, Reverend Tedrick uh, just last month. We stayed with him for a weekend and visited the church there. And uh, was a great time. And just thinking how he used to be an intern at Christ URC and looking at the, the fruit now uh, of that ministry and how the Lord has graciously blessed Christ URC to be engaged and involved in missions. But it's important for us to understand that missions aren't just something that we, 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 we pray about or we write checks to or we, we see guys go off and go do, but that we are all engaged in this work in, in, in different ways. And I want us to think about that because God is involved in mission work, not just in the extraordinary things, but in the very ordinary things, in the ordinary local church. Ordinary, as we know, is not a word that our culture appreciates a whole lot. You know, nobody has a bumper sticker that says, my kid is an ordinary student at whatever elementary school. Uh, you know, we're always looking for something extraordinary, the next big thing. We want spectacular. We want bigger, better, faster, newest phone, better camera. And it's normal for us to think that way. Extraordinary gadgets, extraordinary kids, extraordinary lives. And we almost have got to a point where to feel validated as a person, we can't settle for what's ordinary. And, and our approach to church is sometimes not di that much different. You know, in a world that values novelty, innovation, relevance, well, the expectation is for churches to look extraordinary, for the, the pastors to be extraordinary preachers, to appear hip, and for worship to feel amazing. It's got to feel amazing. And, you know, for teaching to always be very relevant and useful for my my most current list of felt needs. And we don't want ordinary churches. We don't want ordinary ministers. We, we gravitate toward the, the bigger-than-life celebrities and those who lead transformational movements that are in a rush to make some radical impact on our lives. We want to feel like we're getting our, our money's worth. We want churches that are worthy of our personal quest for the spectacular. We want churches that are worthy of us. And so in such an age, why should we bother planting churches or attending a church that is just ordinary, committed to the ordinary ministry of word and sacrament? It seems counterintuitive in our culture today. And yet this is precisely what the head of the church has called us to do. Before he ascended into heaven, before... The God-man, the ruler over all, left this earth. He gave his church their marching orders. And this is what he said. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Now, I said there's four things that I want us to think about. The basis, the goal, the means, and the promise. The basis is in verse 18. Look what Jesus says. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's the first part of the Great Commission. And I confess that that's a part that we, I often forget. I think of the Great Commission, I think, go therefore. But the first part is all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So before Jesus tells the church what to do, he tells them why they should be doing it. And, and we, we all tend to struggle with getting caught up in what am I supposed to do? Give me the practical, give me the relevant, because we do want things to be practical and relevant for our lives. We don't want things to be irrelevant or impractical. Uh, but we, can, we have a tendency sometimes, I think, to separate what we're supposed to do from why we're supposed to be doing it. Now, why should Christ URC be involved in the making of disciples? Why should Christ URC be excited about missions? Why should Christ URC reach out to the community? Why should Christ URC be an evangelistic church? Why? Because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus, the one who loves us, the one we confess, the one through whom we pray, the one we worship. All authority has been given to him. He has all authority. And this is the first part of the Great Commission. The church's mission to make disciples is grounded in what God has already accomplished in his mission. Now, in one sense, loved ones, the whole Bible is a mission document. It reveals how the Father sent the Son on a mission to go redeem the elect. And the entire Old Testament is about that mission that God would bring his son into the world as the last Adam to do what the first Adam failed to do. When, when God exiled our first parents from the garden and, and cursed them because of their rebellion, he promised that he would send a champion to crush the serpent's head. His mission, God's mission, was revealed only in Genesis chapter 3. So in one sense, it's a, it's a mission document about God's mission, about how Jesus would come, but the, the, the Messiah would come to bring salvation to the ends of the earth through the seed of the woman. That was God's mission from the beginning, to, to lead us back to the tree of life, that God would do this himself, which causes us to delight in his grace and his mercy. People always have asked me over the years, uh, you know, why did God allow Adam to fall? Well, if God hadn't allowed Adam to fall, we would never know God's mercy and grace. We would know his righteousness, his justice, but we wouldn't know his mercy, his grace. We wouldn't know how he did for us that which we can't do for ourselves. And that mission was revealed in the beginning. And then we get a fuller picture of that mission as you read the Bible. Remember, the Bible is about one thing. If you remember one thing I've taught you over the last 15 years, it's this. The Bible's about one thing, about God redeeming a people for himself through Jesus Christ. People have, a, have, have confusion about the Bible. Your coworkers, your classmates, your neighbors, they think it's this mysterious, complex book 
that uh, people use to go harm other people or, or they use to try to make their lives a little more moral, a little bit more moral. But in fact, it's one book written in many books in many different genres that communicates one message, how God is redeeming a people for himself through Jesus Christ. And that's God's mission, and you get a fuller picture of that mission as you read the Bible the way it was meant to be read, going through the Old Testament. When God promised Abraham that he would give him a people and a land, that he would be a light to the nations, uh, the, 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 the promise that took on a little fuller clarity, the mission became a little more clear. And then he became, it became even more clear in God's covenant promises to King David, to whom God said, I will, raise up for your, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 2 Samuel 7. The, the mission becoming more clear, a little more broad in its understanding as you, as you read the Bible from Genesis going on. The, prophet after, the prophets after David continued to proclaim this coming Messiah. It was through the prophet Isaiah that we learned that God the Father said to the Son, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Isaiah 49. And in the fullness of time, of course, Christ came accomplishing this redemption through his life death, and resurrection. He lived the perfect life of obedience that none of us ever have. He is the last Adam. He's the offspring of Abraham. He's the true Israel. He's the heir to David's throne. He's the Messiah proclaimed by the prophets. And his mission was accomplished. He did what nobody else has done. And this is why we go. This is why we go into the world. This is the reason we do missions. This is the reason why Christ URC was planted in 2003 and 2004. This is the reason why we're going to the mission field. It's the reason why we share the gospel with others. Because a mission has been accomplished by Jesus. And now he has all authority in heaven and on earth. And I don't know about you, but I tend to forget that. I have spiritual amnesia the worst on that. Me, a pastor with graduate advanced degrees in theology. i give you an example. You know, uh, w- when we were in Colorado with my, with my, staying with my parents, it's a very beautiful part of Colorado, Pagosa Springs, and there's these natural hot springs there that are beautiful. They kind of smell like boiled eggs, but they're, they're absolutely wonderful, and they're, they're warm. You can be in, in sub-zero weather, and you can just comfortably sit in these hot springs. They have various pools that go from you know, different degrees, all the way up to like 112 or something. And we're, my wife and I, on a little date, and I went there, and we're sitting in the pool, one of the pools, there's many, many pools. You pay a little to get into the place, and you can go from pool to pool. And, uh, you know, there's food and drinks. That's wonderful. And we're sitting there, and, and uh, there's lots of people all enjoying these pools. And people from all over the place. And we get into a conversation with another couple about our age, and we end up talking about, you know, just the normal mundane things of life, you know, mortgages and taxes and, and uh, baseball and golf and, uh, you know, Pagosa Springs and, oh, we saw elk. Oh, elk are so beautiful. Yeah, they're bigger than, you know. And I'm waiting for the question as the, the conversation's going on. What do you do? Because as soon as that question is asked... The, the atmosphere always changes, right? It's like, well, I'm a pastor. I'm a minister. <laughs> Air sucked out of the room. 
or you know, oh wow, well we're Christians, and I need, you know, we need to talk with you and talk. And wow, well, I had no idea you're Christians by the way you're acting earlier. But you know, that's <laughs> you know, but it, it's always that way. And here's what I do, loved ones. I dread sometimes that question being asked. Because I'm like, you know, I'm just enjoying this mundane, normal human conversation about nothing. And as soon as this happens, it's going to get all serious. And here's what I forget. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. If he has all authority in heaven and on earth. If, if Matthew chapter, if you have your Bibles open, look at Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. If that is true, then it means that there is no place in heaven and, and on earth where Jesus doesn't belong. That there is no conversation that is inappropriate for Jesus to show up. That, 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 that little pool we were sitting in in Pagosa Springs actually belongs to him. And here I am, a servant, a proclaimer of his gospel. And I'm fearing the awkwardness that it's going to bring. Because even though he has all authority in heaven and on earth, not everybody, as we know, is in submission to that authority. And that's what causes the friction, at least this side of glory. But it should bring us encouragement, loved ones, as we remember, hey, Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. He belongs then in this place, in this conversation. We ought not have fear of man. And it should also bring us encouragement as we, as we seek to go into the world, even into difficult places, hard-hearted places like Italy, where, where people are culturally Christian, Catholic, but have no knowledge of the scriptures and are really suspicious of anything that seems to believe that the Bible is the infallible, inspired word of God. Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth to bring us encouragement as we think of our neighbor and how he needs the gospel. And you know the gospel. And you're like, yeah, but how am I ever going to get into that conversation? Well, remember, Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. And that should help us overcome our own fear of man. And it should also help us to know that, look, the mission has already been accomplished by our Lord. Our job is simply to go out and claim the prize. To go out and claim what already belongs to him. And therefore we need to have no fear. The Spirit sends us to plant and to water in the field that already belongs to Jesus. And Jesus will ensure the increase. For all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. That's the basis of the Great Commission. The next part is the goal. The basis is that Jesus has all authority. That's why we go. The goal, notice, is in verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And in their context, that meant not just the Jew, but yes, even that Gentile that you despise. Go and make disciples. Notice it doesn't say converts. Not mere converts. A convert is someone who puts their faith in Christ and says, okay, I'm baptized and now I'm going to live as a Christian. Well, we don't bail at that point. A disciple begins the moment you're baptized and it continues throughout your whole life. So we're still being made disciples. You're being made disciples. Every time you come here, this is what makes this a mission church. And we desire to make more disciples in the world. 
God didn't call us to go and plant churches so that we can have a club or a clique of friends. You don't need the gospel for that. You don't need the gospel for a club or a clique of friends. You can find a club or a clique of friends in all sorts of things. You just got to find people that have a common interest with you. Now, Jesus called us to go and make disciples. That lifelong process, that slow process of making a follower, a, a devotee, somebody who says, I'm devoting, disciplining my life to follow Jesus Christ. Evangelism is important because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And, and, and the Lord wants us to evangelize. He's not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 2 Peter 3.9. He desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2.4. But, but evangelism is only one component of missions. Missions is about making disciples. Evangelism is only one component of disciple making. And it's important to understand because... When we preach the gospel, we do that to unbelievers, evangelizing them, but we also do that for believers as they're continually being made disciples. See, disciple-making is like making wine. You've got to plant, you've got to grow, you've got to do a whole technical process, you've got to age, and then there's a final product, and the final product will be revealed in glory. In the meantime, we're being made disciples. And that's what God has called us to do. And the necessity of the local church for making disciples, therefore, the ordinary, not doesn't have to be extraordinary, the ordinary local church where the gospel is proclaimed, it can't be overemphasized. That's our Lord's chosen means for gathering his redeemed people. And that brings us to the third thing. The means of missions. So now look at our text here. Verse 18. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's the basis of missions. That's why we go. Verse 19. Go therefore and make not converts, but make disciples. Not just of our friends, not just of our local community, but of all nations. That's the, that's the goal, is to make disciples. That's the goal. And the means comes in the next part of verse 19. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Christ's disciples are are made through the ministry of his word and sacraments. Jesus commissioned his church to baptize, to teach. It's his word, his announcement about his victory, about his accomplished mission that we're, we're called as the church to announce to the world and then help the, the world understand, help disciples understand what all of that means, the, the glory, the multifaceted glory of Jesus Christ and his person and work. So that we're being shaped as, as worshipers. So that we're being, we're being molded and, and matured in that winemaking, disciple-making process. Being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. The teaching never stops. As Calvin says, it's a school from which we never graduate in this life. It's through the ordinary ministry of word and sacrament 
that disciples are made. That's why Christ URC was planted. The goal was to make disciples. The goal was to make disciples through the means of grace. To announce to guilty sinners the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ so that we will live a life of gratitude motivated by that grace. Spiritually nurtured and equipped for good works. And that's clear, loved ones. The local church as being the vineyard, that's clear from the way in which the apostles carried out the Great Commission because it was the apostles who received this Great Commission in Matthew 28. Well, how did they apply it? Well, that's what the book of Acts is all about. And so what did they do? They began preaching the gospel. Yeah, there was that extraordinary Acts 2 Pentecost feast moment where the Holy Spirit descends upon the, the, the apostles and they began preaching in foreign languages and foreign tongues. It would be so awesome as I'm trying to learn Italian if that would just happen. They just get a download or an app and you un- understood the subjunctive every time. But th- it happened supernaturally for them so that the gospel would go out, not just limited to one nation, one tongue, but goes out to all, every nation in every tongue. And then what do you read in the book of Acts from chapter 2? Well, a, 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 about 3,000 were baptized and a church was formed there in Jerusalem where they continued steadfastly in the apostolic doctrine, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, that is communion, and the prayers, the liturgy. And then they go. And what do they do? They plant churches. They continually plant churches that preach the gospel, bring the sacraments, because that's the means of missions. That's the way in which disciples are made. There's all sorts of other things that are helpful, of course. You know, parachurch stuff, books, podcasts, radio programs, all of that. But none of that can baptize. None of that can give the Lord's Supper. None of that stuff are the primary means for making disciples. And now we see, as, as the book of Acts unfolds and, and how it's just gone on for 2,000 years throughout the world, how the old covenant confined God's covenant people to one particular nation, but the new covenant expands Israel's borders to the ends of the earth, making one new man between believing Jew and Gentile, so that the gospel is for people of every race, every tribe, every nationality. It's because of God's promise to Abraham that Christians are black, white, Asian, Hispanic, and more. The Christian faith isn't a northern European faith. It's not a Semitic faith. It's an international, global faith in which there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, to whom has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. In a world that's so segregated, as we know, by our cultural identities, our consumer preferences, our, our, our favorite news channel. The doctrine of the Abrahamic covenant shows us that the church, as it's gathered throughout the world, is a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And that's been played out through these ordinary means in ordinary local churches. That's the means of missions. And to that end, true churches must continue to be planted where few or none exist. Because that local church is the manifestation of the people who belong to Christ. And it's the place where he meets them. 
to feed them, to bless them. <clears throat> Those things don't look spectacular to the world. There's nothing particularly exciting or novel about a ministry of preaching, baptism, and Lord's Supper. Nothing particularly novel or spectacular about Mass and Magnolia and that you know, little church there on the corner in Santee. Uh, there's nothing particularly spectacular about the converted computer store in Milan. But it's the means that God uses to make disciples so that he gets the glory. Yes, as we come into church, it's the same routine each week. You've heard me say this so many times. You know, we come in, yeah, we're joyful. We hear the scriptures proclaimed. Uh, we come to the table. We, we sing. We pray. We, we fellowship with one another. And then we go home. And there's no, nothing spectacular, no halftime shows, no rock concerts, no zip lines, no laser shows, no celebrity personalities. It's plain, it's ordinary, it's even boring. And parents, it's okay to talk to your children about that. That Yeah, church can be a little boring sometimes. I always used to get worried when I was a kid and I would hear, well, church is a foretaste of heaven. Oh, no. Heaven's going to be boring all the time. It goes on and on, and there's no end. There's no benediction at the end. And you know. But we have to understand that in this life, yes, there are parts of church that are a little dull because, well, there's learning involved. There is some learning. There is some, there is some growth. There is some teaching involved. The means of discipleship, as Jesus said, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. But the result of that is a human being made in the image of God who is maturing, who is growing, who is matriculating through the grades of sanctification in a sense, in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, who is being conformed to the image of our Lord. Yes, it can be a little boring. Sometimes it's about as exciting as watching a tree grow. But then Jesus said that the coming of his kingdom is like the growing of a tree. A tree doesn't grow by big and marvelous events, but through the slow and steady diet of sun, rain, year after year after year. And the same is true for us. The same is true with the kingdom of God. More often than not, it doesn't grow by what the world considers a mark of success. Big buildings, big budgets, big names. Instead, it grows in simple and often small services where the gospel is proclaimed. It grows where believers and their children are baptized into God's covenant community. It grows where repentant sinners come to a holy meal that looks so tiny and insignificant. It grows where ordinary members of a congregation love and serve one another, despite their differences. It grows in those late-night, unglamorous meetings of the elders as they seek to tend faithfully to Christ's sheep and pray for your elders. They have an extraordinary amount of work to do. And God is giving them much grace during this time to lead his bride through it. But that's how the kingdom grows, and things that don't look so spectacular. But it shows us, loved ones, that we don't need the next big thing what we need are more churches committed to the way disciples have been made since the apostles planted a church in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. The slow-going, unspectacular, ordinary ministry of word and sacrament where God is doing the extraordinary work of raising dead sinners to life and creating a living communion of saints. And by God's power and grace, we are growing together into that tree. 
a tree that its glory will appear fully at the end of the age. These are the means. So the basis is all authority has been given to Jesus. The goal is to make disciples. The means, word, and sacrament. Now the last thing, briefly, look at verse, the end of verse 20. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So Jesus, he has like a sandwich here. He's got, you know, two indicatives. Indicatives are where he, he says something that's true. You know, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. That's the first indicative. Then he has in the middle of the sandwich two imperatives. Go do something, make disciples, teach, baptize. And then he ends it with another indicative. Something that he has done or will do. He says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I am with you always to the end of the age. And that should fill us with confidence, loved ones. Not only does he have all authority, but he's with us to the end of the age. And he's with you, Christ URC. He will not leave you or forsake you. Pastors, come and go. I have something written here on the inside of my Bible. And, and I think this is very true. Ministers, someone said this a long time ago. Ministers are not kings, but servants. They die or move on, and they are replaced by someone else called to carry on the baton. It's about the ministry, not the minister. It's about Christ, not your pastor. Next guy comes in, and, and God willing, he is faithful and a servant that, uh, that will bring God's word to you. Your eyes, though, are not to be on your pastor, but to be on Jesus. Jesus is the gospel. Not even the, the joy that we receive by getting together and being brothers and sisters. That's not the gospel. That's a byproduct of the gospel. The gospel is Jesus and what he has done. He's the one who's going to hold you and carry you across the Jordan at your last breath. He's the one who's robed you in his cloaks of righteousness. He's the one who died for you. Not your pastor, but Jesus. And it's about Jesus, the one who loves you, the one who, who will not fail you. He has said, I will be with you even to the end of the age. Christ, you receive, never forget that you're married to Jesus. And the church belongs to him. You belong to him, body and soul. And he will make sure that you have all you need for your sanctification, just as he has made sure that you've had everything you need for your justification. He will make sure that you persevere. He will not allow you to fall or to stumble. He'll feed you with his word, his table, and he will care for you. He's done great things among you these past 15 years, and he will continue to do great things in the future. He has made sure that this church was planted and established as a place where disciples are continually made. And he has formed you into a congregation that loves Christ, loves the gospel, and loves one another. And not only that, but from among you, he's even raised up many other servants who've gone out into the world that are now serving his church in various parts of this globe. He has done abundantly more than we ever thought or imagined on May 23rd, 2004. And so it's an exciting time to be alive and by God's grace bring the gospel to the world. Having received so much, 
It's an enormous privilege for us to participate in the Great Commission, which is going on even now amongst you and through you. And so as your, your pastor who now must depart, as Paul said to the Ephesian elders at his farewell in Acts 20, I have not shrunk back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I have failed in many things, but that which is most important for your soul, I have sought to give you the whole counsel of God. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your table. We thank you for your church. We thank you for making us disciples, O Lord. Thank you for bringing us to salvation, causing us to pass from death to life, causing us to pass out of judgment. We thank you for Jesus, the head of your church, the king, the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, the one who has promised to be with us to the end of the age. Pray you bless this congregation, watch over them, keep them, O Lord, through thick and thin as you have over many years. For you love them, and they belong to you. May their eyes never be taken off of Jesus, the one who loves us with an everlasting love. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. I apologize for butchering some of the names in this and phrases. I think uh, the church's name is Chiesa Reformata Philadelphia. I think I got that wrong. Anyway, I hope you were encouraged by Michael's message and that you learned a little something about Milan. Please subscribe to Small Town Theologian on Apple Podcasts, Podcast Addict, Overcast, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, or your preferred platform so you don't miss future specials and regular shows. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, please rate the show and leave a review to help give the show a boost and tell a friend about small town theologian it's accessible all around the world till next time